Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doctor. Interrupting Dr. Satosh. Sorry. Is that a new new character you're doing? (laughs) I like it. Yeah, it's like interrupting cow, but it's interrupting infectious disease doctor. It's me, Dr. Ward. Back from the ER after my overnight. We're well into the holiday season now, and all I want for Christmas is your ratings and reviews and listens. Because I love you. And also a hippopotamus. Only a hippopotamus would do. No crocodiles or rhinoceroses. <laughs> I only like hippopotamuses. <laughs> nope, I'm sorry. You just got Snow and Mariah Carey. I love <laughs> Try again next year. <laughs> Frequent listeners will know this, but hippopotamuses are the second leading cause of death on the African savanna after the humble mosquito. And yes. as everybody knows, hippos are hungry, hungry. Oh, That's they right. are. They... Drift alert, doctor. <laughs> it's a drift alert, Dr. Ward. It's a character I'm trying out. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. So thank yeah. you, drift alert, Dr. Ward, and interrupting Dr. Santosh. We now return you to our regularly scheduled holiday programming where we are going to begin our series, our second annual 12 Days of Christmas What are some very common things you associate, traditions you associate with the holidays around this time of year? Eating, drinking, gift giving. Uh, Influenza and respiratory syncytial virus. You must be a blast to hang out with at (laughs) parties. I also associate it with decorations. Fun fact, a lot of the very common decorations that we love to look at and use around the holidays are also super poisonous. Oh, mine was dark. (laughs) One of the best known of these is, of course, the poinsettia plant, as seen in every household after the movie Home Alone came out. 
Oh, that's true. Yeah, they're right. It's sap is super poisonous, right? Well, yes. and the leaves and everything else. Well, everything else, that's right? However, the toxicity of the poinsettia is actually relatively mild, all things considered, as long as you don't eat it. Uh, it does have latex, so it can cause an allergic reaction to those who are sensitive to latex. It yeah. is very irritating to the skin or stomach. It can cause diarrhea and vomiting if eaten. And sap in the eye may cause blindness. And sadly, was... even though you know it contains uh, latex, it will not prevent pregnancy. Yeah, so don't use... <laughs> As That's how the Virgin Mary got. Uh, but other poisonous holiday plants, oh by gosh, by golly, uh, you definitely should not ingest any mistletoe or holly. Holly is actually very, very poisonous to dogs. And for the same reason that chocolate is, because they both contain theobromine. This is one of those where not a ton of humans get poisoned but of course the berries on hollies are very attractive towards kids so you have to watch out for little kids running around and adjusting them so your dogs and cats will also try to eat these yes oh my god everything's poisonous i i'll bet you even the pine or the tree well you well, can't eat the tree the tree sap is probably they, some sort of irritant well, fluid as well evergreen tree y-e-w uh, also has a combination of red arrows and green needles that make it look like a christmas plant Contains taxines that cause irregular heartbeats after being eaten. Yeah, you can't so eat anything. <laughs> if, if I had to give you one solid piece of advice in this period of eating and drinking, it's do not eat the things with which you are decorating your house. That's good well, advice. And- That's distinctly different from Easter, the peeps, the eggs. We're going to focus on specifically mistletoe. I, I think you hate love. <laughs> Kissing is not love, Santosh. We'll, we'll have a talk about that. Nope. Oh. <laughs> episode. Physical contact oh, is not the same as love. You just but Josh, so sad. Please. <laughs> as the drift monitor doctor, why is the mistletoe toxic? So, yeah. The etymology of the word is actually uncertain. It was really tricky to find. Uh, mistletoe, the plant, can be spread through bird feces. So it's possible that it comes from the German words mist, which means dung, and tang, which means branch. My German pronunciation is horrible. Don't shout at me, I know. <laughs> we just lost our German <laughs> audience yeah. members. Yeah, and they're 99 luft balloons. The kissing under the mistletoe is a long, long established tradition dating all the way back to the Vikings. Uh, there is a Nordic Ooh. myth concerning mistletoe where the plant was sacred to Frigga, the goddess of love, but Loki... Mm-hmm shot Frigga's yeah. son, Balder, with a spear carved from mistletoe. Frigga revived her son under the mistletoe tree with a mother's love, presumably transferred through a kiss, and then decreed that anyone who stands under the tree will deserve not only protection from death, but through the medium of a kiss. So there you go. There's some Vikings, some Marvel. That's awesome. But that's more than mischief. Yeah, but, but once again, like yeah. poor Tom Hiddleston, man, can't catch a break. Yeah. And then in Victorian England, Ward, kissing under the mistletoe was serious business. If a girl <laughs> refused a kiss, as as Santosh pointed out, she shouldn't expect any marriage <laughs> proposals for at least the next year. And many people would snub their noses at her, remarking she would most likely end up an old maid. <laughs> I had to accept Whatever, like, schlub decided to, like, come up on her and give her a kiss, or she'd be snubbed for the rest of the year? Yep. Who are we to argue with tradition? I'm just saying. And actually, 
according to the proper folklore and tradition of Christmas plants, it's not just kissing under the mistletoe, right? You don't just see the plant there and then kiss. It's that the gentleman is supposed to pluck one berry off the mistletoe while kissing the lady on the cheek. Uh, One kiss is allowed for each berry with the last berry permitting a kiss on the lips. Once all berries are gone, the plant no longer has the power to protect or command kisses. What do you think of the old um, holding a mistletoe un- over someone's head are, and then kissing them? Are you the berries <laughs> like, off? Yeah, yeah, well... Then allowed, well, okay. No, because then if you have like your one mistletoe branch, then you're limited to the number of berries that you have on there, right? Yeah, so you got to walk around right. with and- multiple plants. Um, now, remember... <laughs> You're just supposed to pluck one berry per kiss. You should not be eating it because, and here's where we get into the medical aspect, the plant does contain toxic amines, and eating its berries can cause vomiting and stomach pain and other problems that, oh, Ward, have you seen any mistletoe poisoning? I have not seen any specific mistletoe poisoning, but in my experience, when anyone, when you ingest a bunch of irritating plant material that's not supposed to be eaten, one of our first defenses is that our stomachs uh, want to expel that stuff. So nausea, vomiting is not uncommon. Uh, you know, most people know not to eat their decorations, um, but there's really two populations that really don't understand, and they're attracted to bright colored berries. One is animals and the other is little kids. So the most uh, common population that we see are children who love to just take things and shove them into their mouths so like two-year-olds three-year-olds four-year-olds um and then the rest is uh uh aminals we do have uh cases where um people try to brew an elixir from the berries yeah mistle tea um it's, you know, it's called mistle tea it was yeah 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 mistle tea <laughs> but there has been a single fatality from that intestinal, oh, sorry, intentional ingestion um, of that elixir. But other than that, the vast majority are little kids with accidental ingestion. And- yeah, I'm reading here a study that showed, that reviewed, uh, apparently the European kind is more more toxic, but uh, a poison control uh, report of up to like 92 exposures most of them just ended up with upset yeah. stomachs yeah. and vomiting and now that we've covered yeah. one with a seizure toe is dangerous and you shouldn't eat decorations i'm going to immediately reverse course and tell you that mistletoe may now be an excellent uh-huh. supplement in cancer treatment is this one of these like type of i know this sounds a little wooey the main reason for that is uh Mostly, we just haven't studied it in America, but mistletoe, or specifically the liquid extract of the European mistletoe plant, known as iscador, which I say with an accent for no reason other than I like the way it sounds. It's not even the right accent, because this is the most common cancer supplement in Germany. I can't do a German accent without sounding like a famous historical figure. And I'm not going to name him. So I'm just going to say, well, let's stick with Spanish. The most common cancer supplement in Germany is derived from the liquid extract. You like that? Just dropped it mid-sentence. Derived from the liquid extract of the European mistletoe plant. 
And its main use is to stimulate increased activity of the bone marrow, as well as to a lesser extent, provide pain relief. Now, I couldn't find in the studies specifically how it is supposed to relieve pain. There's only one clinical trial going on in the US. Almost all of this has been done throughout Europe. And it is an approved medication in Europe where it's administered subcutaneous or intravenously. Yeah, so this is actually, this is not like the the herb or the berry or the leaf itself. This is extracted proteins from the plant. Well, based on its description, uh, if it stimulates bone marrow activity and pain relief, that sounds more like a palliative or symptom-relieving medication than a disease-curing medication for cancers. I'm taking a look here, Ward, and we actually, it looks like there's some good data in vitro, which means like in petri dishes and in animals and also in humans, that it actually does stimulate um, immune system-enhancing cytokines, so IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha. These are all good cytokines that we naturally make, and you can boost the production of these um, at least in a dish and in some cases in animals and human studies to to actually like increase the production of these cytokines and you know they fight infection but you know in a general way it kind of raises your level of inflammation and that can be non-specifically used to treat cancer alongside like your targeted therapy like like chemo yeah so so and the main benefit or the reason that people love this is not as a sole treatment, but because it is a fraction of the cost of chemo. An average mistletoe course averages around 150 to $250 a month, depending on the dose and the length of treatment. That's pretty affordable as, you know, a boost to your existing cancer treatment. And The trials have, by and large, indicated that mistletoe improves survival and quality of life. And all of the, but the problem is a lot of these trials did have major weaknesses like a small number of patients, incomplete data, lack of standardized dosing, or just design problems with the study. However, I went digging through PubMed, which is a free search engine for medical research. You can kind of think of it as as like the Google of journal clubs. Sure. A Cochrane review, which is done as a big meta review. It's some researcher looks at all the research that's been done or a bunch of research that's been done on a specific topic, reads through all of the papers, and then writes a analysis over how good the available evidence for studies is. So it's like a study of studies to determine how good your studying is. Yo, dog, I heard you like research, so I researched your research and put some research in your research. Yeah. Some next-level <laughs> shit next stuff. Level. <laughs> but what do did, what did so the Cochrane reviews show? 50 of them excluded for various reasons, largely being with weak studies. So of the 21 studies, or of the 21 studies left, they looked at 13 on survival, 7 on response to tumor, 16 on psychological outcomes, and 12 on side effects of mistletoe treatment. And the general effects did show that all of them did show efficacy, meaning they all have a statistically detectable and often statistically significant effect when used in conjunction with existing chemotherapy. So 
Of the 21 studies, 18 showed statistically significant evidence of benefit, but only two of those studies were high enough quality that you could really develop a treatment plan around it. Well, I, I think that shows that there's room right. for more studies to be done and that it's a potentially useful tool. And not only that, but it looks like because the adverse effects aren't too, too bad, you have some inflammation in the ejection site, you have some headache, fever, and chills, which, you know, you see it with chemotherapy as well. Um, this is one of those where you could ramp up the number of patients and go to like a multi-center trial. Um, but I think, Josh, you're right. You have to come up with some sort of a standardization of things like dose and formulation. Because every time you're extracting something from a plant rather than synthesizing it, every time you give a dose, the the medicine that's in the syringe is going to be different even from patient to patient. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the... Uh, the databases here, um, same as you, at the National Cancer Institute here in the United States. Um, and the reviews um, look really, really good. And it looks to be a fantastic um, adjunct treatment uh, with chemotherapy to improve the quality of life. Um, but yeah, it, many more studies should be done with a larger patient cohort. Um, and they may need to hone down on particular types of cancer yeah. as well, right? So right now, they're kind of going all over the map. Colorectal cancer, bladder cancer, lung. As we know, and our frequent listeners should know, cancer is not a singular term. Right. Now, for those of you who are interested in learning more about this, the only study in the U.S. is currently taking place at Johns Hopkins, and they are actively enrolling patients at this time. So you are welcome to head on over. I'll include a link so you can read up on it. And who knows, maybe by next Christmas, when I give you my heart, the very next day, you'll be kissing your oncologist underneath the mistletoe. This is so cool, oh, yeah. Josh. I was, I was <laughs> totally ready to uh, shit all over your idea of mistletoe as cancer therapy. You know, I have to say, Santosh, during the holiday season, your lack of faith in me is is hurtful well he's you know what this is a this is a classic christmas carol story by by episode one he's in his scrooge before the uh visit of uh, the ghost of christmas <laughs> past present and future so he's still a yeah. humbug mode yeah, right now the end of our given of christmas, another Santos few episodes Josh. And yell, you boy what episode is this why episode 12 <laughs> sir well then take all these ridiculous sounding studies and bring them to doctors everywhere <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I actually, I am genuinely encouraged by this. You know, the, um, the NCI uh, is a very wonderful authoritative source, and it looks like they've gathered uh, upwards of like 26 studies here, and the Cochrane Review looks extremely promising. Oh, by the way, I, I recently learned in current practice that another uh, plant-derived medication cleared FDA for treatment of epilepsy here in the United States, cannabidiol. All these studies do pay off. Our second 12 days of Christmas topic. I know I'm stacking a few. Don't worry. You're not going to be cheated. You will get 12 full Christmas topics, even if they're scattered over not that many episodes. The next one is another very common popular holiday occurrence. Ward, you mentioned eating and drinking. What are some specific holiday foods you like? Ham. Turkey, 
eggnog. Um, uh, what else? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Candy canes. Oh, candy canes. Eggnog is a very love it or hate it drink, and you know that's not surprising given that its ingredients are raw eggs, milk, and sugar, and yeah. rum. Uh, it's it's an acquired taste. So it, it sounds like an unfinished or an unbaked rum cake. Yeah, it sounds like somebody just was too lazy to go ahead and bake a cake, and they're like, eh, I'll just yeah. drink the batter. Like, yeah. Fine. <laughs> it's like, hey, do you have, like, actually, like, a whisk in an oven? They're like, no. Uh, just tip it back into your gullet. <laughs> it's just missing a cup of so, flour. Some <laughs> just people that, love eggnog. That's it. Some people hate it. It's a boozy holiday egg-related drink. And that's where the health concern comes yeah. in. Because, of course, if you're eating raw eggs and you're not Sylvester Stallone, Mr. Yeah. Infectious <laughs> Disease, Doctor, what is the most common yeah. bug or risk that you would have to worry about? Yeah, and, you know, even if you are Sylvester Stallone, actually, <laughs> early on, depending on where you're from, by the way, and I, I should make this caveat. So, Eggs are handled differently in Europe than they are in the United States and other parts of the world as well. Eggs are kept non-refrigerated in other parts of the world because eggs, when they are pushed out of a chicken, actually have an antibacterial coating on the outside. And if you have sparse farming conditions, meaning that you know you don't have like a bunch of chickens in a cage and they're kind of spread out, and you keep that antibacterial coating, then you reduce your risk of your favorite bacteria, Salmonella. And you you keep it out of circulation. Here in the United States, where the popular mode is factory farming, um, the eggs are washed uh, after they are brought out of the chicken. And so you lose that protective coating. So you have to do two things. You have to wash them really well on the outside. And then you have to keep them refrigerated in order to keep bacterial counts way, way, way down. Now, when you crack that raw egg and you bring it out into the open, for a long while, you know, you, you don't have an issue. You know, you can cook it immediately and you have no problem. Uh, or if you, even if you keep it around for like well, 24 hours at room temperature and it's raw and you've broken the egg, it's really not a problem. But after that, if you have any salmonella on there and it wasn't properly cleaned off, then those bacteria will start to multiply and eggs are a fantastic growth medium for bacteria. Um, and then you get to transmit the salmonella all over, including to unsuspecting humans. Um, and you get to give the gift of diarrhea and typhoid fever. Um, not that great gifts. Uh, I'd almost, almost certainly have the uh, lump of coal over the salmonella. Now, Ward, what do people with salmonella infections look like when they show up in the ER? Oh, you know what? <laughs> this year's been a big year for salmonella. I, I will say, 2018 has been a big year for salmonella. You're been in the news like all over. Um, like, oh, salmonella is uh, coming back. Well, you know, he, it's been his year. Yeah, it's that. That's his year. He's been waiting for a while. Uh, usually, vomiting, diarrhea, fevers. And uh, I, well, this year, because it's been in the news so much that I've been having a lot of patients who have had romaine lettuce or, you know, salads from a certain restaurant. And they come in thinking that they have 
a salmonella or they have an infection from salmonella. And usually people come in with diarrhea, want to get checked. And um, I will say that this year I've, we've actually tested a few patients who've tested positive and, um, time? and they, so that, let's say you were have treated afterwards. some romaine lettuce or a salad from that unnamed restaurant and you do have salmonella. How soon after eating can you expect to see those symptoms? Well, in my experience, people have come in from anywhere from a few days to up to a week. And um, maybe Santosh can tell tell us more about the average incubation time, but it's not uncommon a few days after. Uh, and um, it, because these symptoms can last a while, so sometimes yeah, patients so don't come in until like a week time later. Is anywhere between seven to twenty-one days. It's really kind of a wide margin. So the most common range is anywhere between um, one to two weeks. So that seven to fourteen day window after they've ingested whatever the source is of the salmonella. And you're right, uh, Ward, the, the presentation's a little bit protean at the beginning for typhoidal strains. They can have just abdominal pain. They can say that I had vomiting, but now it's gone. Um, I had diarrhea, but now I have constipation. Um, the typical presentation is soft stools to diarrhea and low-grade fevers that just kind of persist without ever going away. So like those 101s that never quite go away. Um, and the really common thing that we all look for, but it's kind of subjective, it's hard to see, is this, um, it's kind of like this typhoidal stare. Like, I've only seen this in kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they I just have to say, I don't feel great. And that can last for a really long time. And the big worry is that, um, you know, the, the, they can actually resolve the infection and feel better even without antibiotics if you give them enough time. Um, but you do worry about complications. And the worst of the worst is if they turn into a chronic carrier where they shed the bacteria. And this can be for years, even when all their symptoms are gone. Yeah. So that would be like the salmonella stare, like the Care Bear stare. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I would like Although, Mary. Guys, that, that Radiolab <laughs> episode was very poignant. And I actually went back and read poor Typhoid Mary was ostracized. Listen, when she was probably not the only carrier of typhoid around. Yeah, but she was also told stop cooking and continued to do so. So I don't have quite the same sympathy for her that you do. She, she did. She did. But I think she was kind of unfairly targeted um, because in retrospect, it looks like there were tons and tons of people spreading the typhoid around. Well, as... As uh, before, we get drift alert, Doc Ward. Oh, drift alert. Sorry, I drifted myself. Job, drift Ward. alert. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you on a bit of a historical drift. Drift alert. And let you know, better late than Doc never. Has been around also for quite a while now, not as long as mistletoe, but it did come over on the Mayflower with the formerly British settlers, and whereas people in the UK tend to make their eggnog more with brandy people in the US oh. would did not appreciate taxes on brandy and whiskey so instead we used rum brought from the caribbean so that's kind of how rum nog got its start now <laughs> historically settlers had no freshly laid eggs in the fall and winter and this is because you're about to learn a little bit something about me guys i really like chickens yeah all right <laughs> i'm just i'm fascinated by them we don't need to get into the why. Just know that I keep a lot of chicken facts on hand. 
word is this? What are, I mean, what are you going to tell us about chickens now, <laughs> Josh? Tell us about chickens. So chickens, chickens <laughs> and their reproduction. Bones. You cannot own legally a single chicken. They they need to come in at least yeah. pairs. But the the key thing here for egg production is that hens need fourteen hours of daylight to maintain their egg production through circadian rhythms. Once the length of the day falls below 12 hours, egg production drops off dramatically and in many cases stops altogether. Now, with industrialization, we have gotten around that by keeping hens in brightly lit factories and cages where they are cooped haha, up with each other. <laughs> but it really is a light thing. So I just thought it's really neat that, you know, 14 hours of daylight to make eggs. Um, and that's... And here's why this is important, because you do not have 14 hours of daylight in the winter in most of the country outside of California. And if that is the case, how are you using raw eggs to make eggnog and not risking salmonella? And this is what is the amazing part, even though it is only tangentially chicken related. Aged, (laughs) aged alcoholic eggnog can become sterilized and safe to drink, even if made with salmonella-contaminated eggs. Oh, come on, Josh. And I knew you were going to doubt me, oh ye of little faith. <laughs> Historically, most eggnog recipes that date back to the 1700s call for burying the nog and fermenting it. So you would catch your, you would collect your eggs from your chicken's in the harvest time in the fall, and then you would make your eggnog and bury it and forget about it till the winter because aging alcoholic eggnog, sometimes for as long as a year, has been said to not only improve its flavor significantly, but destroy pathogens. You bury it in the root cellars where you have refrigeration because as you mentioned earlier, you do need to keep these eggs refrigerated. Uh, once they've been washed and cleaned. So cellars were the refrigeration units back in the day. Now, here is your proof, because I knew you would doubt me. The Rockefeller University Laboratory of Bacterial Pathogenesis and Immunology did an experiment in 2010 where salmonella was actively added to a strong alcoholic eggnog, which was then refrigerated and stored. One week later, the beverage still had dangerous levels of salmonella. But within three weeks, all the salmonella was gone and the researchers celebrated by drinking the eggnog that they had made. And they determined that a concentration of at least 20% of alcohol and as well as refrigeration are recommended for safety. I feel bad for the scientists who drank the 18% batch. This is kind of on a gradation, right? This isn't a binary thing that like once you hit 20%, there's zero pathogen. No, no, no. You need at least twenty percent like... alcohol, and it also has to be allowed to ferment. So remember, one week after they added the salmonella, still dangerous. Three weeks, all the salmonella gone. Right. So for three weeks, yeah. Oh, nice. Yep. I was going to say twenty percent. Yeah, twenty percent is what forty proof. Yeah, that's that's not, a pretty I, stiff well, drink. Not, well, wine is twenty-one percent uh, alcohol by volume. Yeah, but rum is only about what. Uh, yeah, so that's 40 high. or 50, yeah, yeah, yeah. like so 40%. We're down to like 20%. 20 is so high, that's yeah. Okay. Right. That's like but, wine level kind of thing. But right. okay. okay, so wait, what what was the evidence for this, Josh? From Rockefeller University, their Laboratory of Bacterial Pathogenesis and Immunology. And it's a 2010 experiment, which I will pull up for you. But uh, Forbes <laughs> did a great article on it, as did pretty much 
almost every major news outlet linked to the same two or three studies that were done when I started <laughs> looking for eggnog-related disease. Yeah, Rockefeller microbiologist test safety of spiked eggnog. Yeah, so... Uh... <laughs> All right, Vincent A. Fischetti. Although I don't know how to do it. So at request of National Public Radio's Science Friday program compared the bacteria found in homemade alcoholic eggnog with those found in store-bought non-alcoholic nog. This is really awesome. So he just straight science the shit out of some eggnog. Science. Well, that, okay, I looked it up. The alcohol that we use for disinfecting, you know, um, our our skin before we do an IV is about 70% yeah. isopropyl. So it's a little bit different. It's not ethanol, it's isopropyl. But it makes sense that you you know because it's what it's it's only twenty percent that it would take <laughs> Josh, three I, weeks I to kill a lot of bacteria. You're absolutely right that you know you can use twenty percent alcohol to you know kill in the environment. But the person who shared the eggnog recipe is Rebecca Lansfield, who actually came up with the Lansfield classification of bacteria had an eggnog recipe the eggs heavy cream light cream bourbon and rum nutmeg sugar to taste leave standing at least overnight with lids slightly ajar in the fridge serve after two to three weeks in the cold eggnog is a dangerous drink for people who have diabetes or kidney disease due to a number of its ingredients so in the spirit of the holidays, I have included, linked in the show notes, a recipe for eggnog that is kidney and diabetes safe from DaVita, who those of you in the medical field may recognize as your friendly, very common dialysis centers. Uh, DaVita's Dialysis Nog. Yay, dialysis. There's a recipe in there, which I included it just because it amused me. So... <laughs> As we move on, that that covers our major topics, but I do want to throw in just a bonus because if you partake in too much eggnog or if you go a wassailing, a wassailing among the leaves so green, too much intake of these alcoholic holiday drinks can cause congestive hepatopathy and heart failure and congestion of the liver that leads the liver to take on a very distinctive appearance that pathologists refer to as nutmeg yeah. liver. Because pathologists is it because yeah, it looks like nutmeg? Liver, like the appearance cut cross of it under a microscope okay. is speckled like a grated kernel of nutmeg that you might <laughs> shave into your eggnog. Dark spots represent dilated and congested hepatic veins and small hepatic vessels. And the uh, rest of the grating is the surrounding liver tissue as it progresses both from fatty to scarred and eventually cirrhotic. But, you know, scientists, while usually are not great at naming are naming drugs, pathologists are really yeah, good at naming because is, they're usually pretty hungry. Granulation tissue named for the granular, you know, sugar that you put on pastries, chocolate cysts uh, for when you cut open an ovary that has been bled into, it looks like yummy, yummy chocolate, like a bonbon. Uh, cherry red spot in the back of your eye and the horribly debilitating genetic disease case that. Um, blueberry muffin Don't forget about blueberry muffin babies. Torch infections, babies. Nutmeg liver is basically yeah, actually. congestive liver failure 
seen from too much drinking. And we're going to link it in this case to eggnog or mulled wine, although you can see it with any alcohol intake. So, yeah. So there's your, your first two basically a cirrhotic liver from our 12 days of Christmas series, more to come both on our regular airing day, as well as periodically dropped over the next couple weeks in the days leading up to Christmas. Now, for those of you who do not know when the actual 12 days of Christmas are, it starts oh, December 25th as day oh, one and that. then so wait, goes wait, wait, wait. on. The, the 12 days of Christmas starts on Christmas Day? Yes, and then proceeds through a series of feasts ending in January. So that is when all these 12 days of Christmas gifts are being given. In the meantime, I'm going to have us play a little game before we sign off where I ask you guys, what Christmas carol would you associate <laughs> with a medical condition? Yeah. People suffering from schizophrenia may enjoy the Christmas okay. carol, Do You Hear What I Hear? Okay. All right. I'm going to say um, <laughs> uh, people suffering from PTSD. Very nice. Uh, I'm uh, dreaming of a white Christmas. People with senile dementia walking in a winter wonderland, oh, miles nice. from my house in my slippers uh, and robe. I'll go with, uh, and a lot of these, I guess, are quite psychiatric. Um, but I'll go with uh, if they're suffering from psittacosis, um, chlamydia psittaci, uh, twelve days of Christmas, um, because they get all those birds. They get the geese a laying and they get the partridge in a pear tree. If you're deaf, you might be having a silent night. Whereas if you That's hear too many true. jingle bells, and you could I'm get tinnitus. Carol of the bells. A speech impediment. Uh, la 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 la. If you suffer from oh, Argeria, silver now. balls and mumps oh, from the chipmunk enough. song. Yeah, the Alvin and all that going on, and then you have yeah, because you didn't vaccinate, <laughs> and now you're that one's straightforward. So for those of you playing along at home, please post on our Facebook, Twitter, or direct message us with what your favorite Christmas carol for a medical condition would be. And that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. We would be enthralled if you would give us your ratings and reviews and help new people find out about the show as a Christmas gift to us. And in the meantime, if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all of our friends. And until next time, as always, happy travels and happy holidays. Yay! up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.